BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today is the day you will lose fat. Come see Dr. T at NJ Diet. Easiest diet I've ever done. It's changed my life. Come see Dr. T. Using blood work and DNA testing. 1-855-5-NJ-DIET and njdiet.com. Change your life in only 40 days with NJ Diet. You are tuning into the library with Tim Inico, rapstation.com. Big triggers, me and sick figures. Big L, Cameron, Jay Z, Jennifer Lopez, Busta Rhymes, Young Guns, 50 Cent, Ghostface. These are some of the artists my next guest has worked with. He's a teacher, an author, a producer. He's the founder of Six Figure Entertainment. He's Dara Jacob Branch, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Inico. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Nice to be here. So, what was the uh, first record you produced? I'm not saying like record isn't like label had it under do you remember like that first record that you put together and do you and what artists did you have in mind to spit over it when you were creating this track probably the first track that uh actually got paid for which was um uh, the track american dream that i produced for uh big l that was probably the first uh on the business side, you know, it was like, you know, it was kind of like validation. But then also on the production side, um, it was that track because it was just kind of unanimous. You know, everybody, uh, initially that track was done uh, with me, uh, Cameron, uh, Mace, and um, Bloodshed was on a track originally. And Big Al heard it and he loved it so much and he felt like, you know, everybody should be on it which was, you know, himself and McGruff. So that's kind of how that, that track came about. As a producer, I feel like you... And I'm going to ask you other... Obviously, I'm going to talk about something... Talk more about Big L a little later. Right. But as a producer, when you have that moment, does that change kind of the... Like, and an artist wants to get on it. Does that change, like, the mission for you of the track? Or like, how do you adapt to that moment? Um... Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to an uh, uh, aspiring producer about this uh, a few days ago, actually, in my um, in my class. And it's uh, it's funny because as a producer, you, you, when you start you start producing, start making tracks. I mean, it's it, for me, it started as like um, a piece of art, you know. So I started building on it and, and trying to make it something that I that I loved or that I at least liked to a certain point and then you know it's kind of like once you get it to a certain point and now you're like handing it over yeah, yeah, right. you know to to somebody else to kind of essentially either add some more greatness to it or 
just totally tear it apart. It's like having a drawing a painting and, and have beautiful colors, and then all of a sudden somebody spits on it like <laughs> Beach Street, you know? So <laughs> it can go either way. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, you just kind of kind of figure out how to detach yourself from it and understand that the production, um, that's, that's really what production is, is uh, the overall production of a, of a song instead of just making the beat. What was the, and this could be different from mm-hmm. your first answer, but what was the, what was the first record that you created that kind of had like industry recognition that kind of had like, all right, people are knocking on your door, calling you on the phone saying, I want to work with Digga. It was, uh, actually, um, two and, um, but I don't know if I would credit it. I mean, but well, it was kind of Kim's first single, which was three five three five seven. And on the flip side, it was um, uh, "Pull It" featuring DMX. And um, that was Cam's first single, and it was kind of, you know, Cam was a new artist at the time, it was a new style at the time, so um, that brought attention to not only Cam, but me as a producer as well, and that was kind of my first like taste of oh well you know people actually want me to work with them you know because up until that point I was just really working with Cam I never really thought about working with other people you produced you executive produced Cam's first two albums uh was that when 357 was happening or created right. was that initially a part of everything uh, an entire album uh, or is that like more like we have something here that's it's funny because while we were making that actual song the label hated it they hated that song um, if you really listen to the song it's you know it's kind of in a freestyle format where Cam is rhyming maybe I don't know, 20 something bars, and then you hear me in the middle of it say, you know, yo, you ain't gotta rhyme like that. What the fuck is wrong with you? Man, yo? fuck that, it's not a game, yo, man. You ain't gotta it's be rhyming like for niggas like man, that. Fuck them niggas, you know what I'm Yo, you know what you do? What? Tell these niggas the real deal, all right? I ain't checking. Hey, yo, I'm cooking this You know what I'm saying? And then he continues, so it was almost like a demo because we were, we, 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 we played the beat. You know, Un and, and everybody else at the label wasn't really feeling it. I mean, again, this is during the kind of quote-unquote bad boy entertainment days, right? So a lot of the music that was coming out at that time, you know, bad boy and track masters was, you know, sampling 80s type of hit records and stuff. And we were coming, you know, I had a television theme, you know, so it was just totally left field. So, um yeah. Don't mean to disturb, never been to Sesame Street, but I flip a big bird, and I know Steelers, and they're not from Pittsburgh. No kids rapping, I ostriches, just kidnappings and hostages. So y'all better obey, we shoot the pro way, mess with us, no way. Now go ahead, go play. How did, uh, how did, how does that, okay, so you're, that, you're in the bad boy era moment, right. right? And you and Cam are pushing something totally different. Right. You're, like, pushing a style that's different and going to be ahead of its time so to say right you as a producer and cam as an artist how are you pitching that or how are you kind of 
waking up a, a label from being like, oh, don't have to, you don't have to do Bad Boy anymore. You could do this type of style. Like, how did, how did you guys right. get that through? Um, well, really, at that time, you know, it was just, it was, uh, it was Cam and, and, and everybody else, me, Cam, and everybody else around them pretty much telling Un and, and, and Jacob and all the other people at the label, like, yeah, you're crazy. Like, this is, this, is, this is that fire. This is on the street. And I think even at that time, we might have even gave it to, like, DJ Clue. Or the, the mixtape circuit, K-Slay at that time. So, you know, you had the underworld. You know, you had, you had, you had another outlet to, you know, kind of distribute the music and kind of see and give a feel. So once we did that, you know, I don't, to this day, I really don't know how it was, uh, you know, we, uh, who made the decision to, to kind of make it a white label, which is, you know, what at the time was kind of a, a record or a 12-inch single that, you know, nobody really wanted to put out, you know, as a full, quote-unquote, official single. Okay. So that's kind of what happened at Entertainment. They put it out. And then it got into the hands of, you know, Funkmaster Flex at the tunnel and the rest was history after that. Do you think if you guys did that today, that in the in current state of hip-hop, do you think that could happen? Um, it, can, it can happen, but it, it, it's a different approach now. Like with social media, social media, everybody's, you know, attention span is real short. So you have to figure out a way to constantly have it in someone's face, in the fan's face to really change what's going on right now. Is it more about a numbers game now? I mean, like, numbers in terms of, like, likes on Facebook or YouTube hits than it has been in the past, a different type of number game in the past? Or has uh, it always been a numbers game? I would, it was always been a numbers game. It's just now it's more of a... You can, you can actually see what's going on. Like, you know, before it was... You put out a single and now you had to either look at your BDS spins and see what DJs are playing it and getting the record up to a certain point uh, plays in certain cities in order to get that official, okay, now we have something type feel. Today, you know, it's like now we're looking at how many YouTube and SoundCloud views you have in order to, to make it official. So. I want to start, I want to go back a little in your right. career. Uh, my Obviously, you're known as a producer. Right. But my understanding is that you and Cam were also in the way beginning with some sort of rap, a rap duo. Right, right. Uh, did you feel the need to pursue yourself as an MC? And if you did, why, why didn't you? <laughs> um, honestly, I, I didn't really... I didn't like my voice, and I'm pr probably most artists say that. <laughs> but um, it was just really... Uh, my, my grandfather always told me, like, when I first started in music, when he introduced me to music, it was the first thing that he said was, you know, you don't want to be in front of the, on, on TV. You want to be the, behind the scenes, you know. So it was like, I didn't really understand what he meant by that when I was younger. But, you know, as I went on, I got introduced to hip hop from my uncle. Um, you know, he was in a group called the Disco Four. And um, he introduced me to hip hop, DJing. And then from there, it was just a progression of just production. You said your grandfather introduced you to music and right. your uncle. And so, do you remember the first album you heard? Maybe a record that your grandpa played for you or your uncle played for you that you said, "All right, I want to. This is what I want to do. This is I want to produce and I want to try to recreate this record." Um, maybe not. Maybe not recreate it, but um, 
You know, it was it was uh, certain records like I think it was called um, what was a one night love affair. Another uh, Patrick Adams producer from the disco era, right? He was actually, uh, you know, uh, mentored by my grandfather, you know. So my grandfather was the one that actually mentored him and, and Leroy Burgess and, uh, you know, from Black Ivory. So, Patrick Adams, the same guy who worked on Paid in Full? Yes. yes. He, did the, he, was, he was the uh, engineer from Paid in Full. So, yeah, so a lot of that stuff, and it's funny that you bring that up because... I would say that was actually uh, one of the first records. It's Eric B for president, but it was kind of by default because I knew Patrick Adams. <laughs> you know, so it was like, yo, you working with Eric B and Rock Kim and you mixed that record? So, you know, at Power Play Studios. So I would actually say that was probably one of the records in hip hop that really, like, said, yo, I want to do this. I don't bug out of chill or be acting ill. No tricks in 86, it's time to build. Eric, be easy on the cut, no mistakes allowed. Cause to me, MC means move the crowd. I made it easy. I want to ask you a kind mm-hmm. of a first impression type question. All right. Uh, and this is totally as like a producer getting introduced to an artist. You obviously worked with Jay-Z, 50, right. Jennifer Lopez, right. Buster, Ghostface, Big Al. Um, do you remember the first thing you ever heard from Jay-Z? And kind of what was your initial impression? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, um, the first records that I heard from Jay-Z were he was actually working with Ski Beats. Um, and he rhymed fast. Um, couldn't understand a word that he was saying. And honestly, we were really like, we weren't really feeling that type of style. It's never a question of how, but when I rip it, will I quit it? Forget it, still I always a point whenever I hit it. But ain't forbidden, don't do what y'all done it too late, y'all did it. I should have track, I'm running your back, back, like that. Honestly, it was kind of like a gimmick, you know, at, that's what I, that's kind of what I felt at that time, excuse me. Um, he was, he was good, but it just was a gimmick, and, you know, Twister was out at the time as well, you know, so it was like, ah, this fast style is not really, you know, not really it for me. Um, but I did see the, the progress, really, from him going from that style to slowing it all the way down <laughs> to something that you can understand. When, when is the connection of you two working together? When did... That, I mean, was he had he progressed a lot in his career since since you? Yeah, yeah, year? oh, definitely. I mean, we we actually, you know, like that was kind of our circle when we all started. You know, like um, you know, Dame Dash, you know, uh, Jay Z, Biggs, like when they were first starting Rockefeller, and actually before they really even started the official Rockefeller, we were still around. You know, we were doing our demos, and Jay Z was the artist that was working. Uh, Ski Beats was kind of from the late neighborhood from, you know, he lived in 1199 in Harlem. So it was kind of like we would actually go to his house, too, because he was the, he had the SB12. And, you know, I, I used to go there because I didn't even really have that type of equipment when I started. So it was all a big, you know, kind of kind of thing. And we never really I never really was 
able to get to that level to work with him because Ski was working with him at that time. But as you know, you know, it was kind of like Ski was working with Jay. I was working with my crew. And then when we got to the point to make it happen, um, you know, hip hop, you know, uh, pretty much said, you know, give, you know, give me some tracks to work. You know, Jay is working on an album. Give me some tracks. He just picked out some tracks, and then the rest was history after that. Obviously, one of the old, your oldest relationships are with Big Al. Right. Uh, you know, um, what was the first, when he started rhyming, uh, what did you hear in his voice that kind of gave you that sense that he was going to uh, be essentially um, extremely impactf- impactful in this art? Probably, well, definitely the voice in itself. Like, his voice just cuts through. It's very distinctive. But um, uh, what we would call the compounds, the rap style that he had, you know, he was like, um, what was, uh, you better flee hop, hops or get your ass flown three blocks. You know what I'm saying? So it was like that whole style, when we heard him actually doing that, he was like, yo, you didn't have to, the traditional rap style was always to just pretty much have a line and, and the last word of that line had to rhyme. But then, you know, when he introduced that way, you had three or four different words in a sentence could rhyme with the next three or four different words in the next sentence. You know, that was kind of it. And, um, you know, just, just overall, just him doing it and actually being that good from a, from my neighborhood, right. you know. Big Al passed away, and we, mm-hmm. and he still to this day is still talked about. Right? Um, are you hearing in today's? I mean, are you hearing what? Are you hearing his impact still when you listen to artists today? Oh, or, absolutely. And what are you hearing that he kind of his kind of uh, what he did? What are you hearing? I'm hearing um, for one what I was just talking about, which is the con- compound rap style, and in um. I'm hearing um, even saying some of the shock value stuff that he said. I mean, he was one of the first things, you know, do the, what was the devil's son and, yeah. and things like that. And, you know, before Eminem and, you know, so all of those different things and still, still keeping it hip hop, still, still, you know, rapping, you know, with it is, is probably the most important thing. So if any of the MCs that are out there now that really want to say, you know, you know, right now, I'm saying we're bringing, bringing New York back. Cause, yeah. You know, they kind of say that often. His influence is in there some type of way. You know, you, you Children of the Corn, or right. you, Big Al, Mace, Bloodshed, mm-hmm. McGruff, Cameron. Uh, I read an interview, you said, I learned a lot back then. The game was a lot different back then, but I learned how to work with artists. I mean, just being around artists like Big L, going to the studio, I learned how to make a basic record, basically. Right. Um, how is it different making a record today versus back then? And then, can you... You talked about Big L as an artist. You kind of talked about... You pers- talked about personal, but can you talk about your working relationship with Big L? Um kind of what you learned from him from that. What, what I learned the working relationship was um I mean we didn't we didn't honestly do a lot of work um you know we worked probably honestly maybe four or five times like in the studio um 
but at the time, again, you know, studio time was was precious. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we did a lot of uh, planning before we actually went in the studio. So, you know, I, I remember going to his house several times and um, just playing tracks and, um, you know, him him picking out tracks and, and, and trying to figure out what what we were do, what we were going to do um, in the studio. So that that's one of the diff- that's one of the things that is different about making records now is just the preparation. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but ooh, I used to make I used to make music, uh, be prepared to go make music in the studio without even having equipment. You know what I mean? So it was like my thought process of I was making beats in my head before I even made the beat. So now with the technology, you can kind of you can do a lot of pre-production, but I don't know if that removes some of the creativity of the the wow factor that you may get when you're being creative inside the studio. And also, I mean, there's less one-on-one, right? I mean, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's definitely a given. I mean, the one-on-one, the one-on-one collaboration, and even the respect, you know. Because, again, we talk about the technology and people can go go to Guitar Center right now and walk out and become a producer right. in their eyes. They feel that. <laughs> you know, so now when you go in the studio, you know, it's like, oh, you're not really a producer because now, you, you know, anybody could be a producer. You know, so now that the whole respect factor of, in the trust, trust level is just totally lost. I want to ask you a little later about uh, beat maker versus producer, right. but uh, prior before that, um, you have been doing this for quite some time. Uh, you're 42, right? Uh, when you first got into this art, did you even think this would be kind of a career for you? I mean, was that the thinking back then? For even like Children of the Corn, like was that you're like this is going to be a long thing, or is this more like a we'll do it until we can and might have to do something else? Uh, for me, it was going to be a career. With me, with the Children of the Corn and everybody else, I I couldn't say that that was really the plan. I mean, it, you know, when we kind of formed the Children of the Corn, it was really, you know, kind of kind of out of necessity almost because at that time, you know, crews were forming. <laughs> You know, Big L was the one. He came up with the name Children in the Corner. He was the one that was actually putting putting the crew together. But it kind of got morphed into us, meaning me, Cam, and Bloodshed being named Children of the Corner because we were the only artists that were left unsigned without a record deal at the time. You know, so he had to deal with Columbia. L, I mean, uh, L had to deal with Columbia. McGruff had to deal with Uptown MCA. Mace had to deal with Bad Boy. So it was like, okay, we're known as the children of the corn, but nobody's left. So, yeah, but as far as the, to get back to your question, though, yeah, it, there, wasn't, there wasn't really no premeditated thinking behind actually the crew itself. But for me, I knew that I was going to have a career in music. I, I knew that I wanted my own record label. I knew I wanted to do music production. I knew I wanted to work with artists, all of that. Uh, you know, so much of... You know, a lot of talk is like hip hop's a young man's game, right? Right. Um, and you talk about it with like you know, the idea of being like, can you be a sixty-year-old rapper talking about stuff that like a twenty-year-old will talk about? Right. Is it believable? Uh, obviously, you got into that P 
Peter Rock responded to a, a right, meme you, right. you did, uh, which I said, "Old heads, stop complaining and show this generation why you're still here." Uh, you have Elaine. Um, you know, everyone knows the story, right? Uh, but one, uh, what prompted you to create that meme? But also, how tough is it for older heads to drive down the lane that you talk about? If if it seems that radio play is for the young man or young woman. Okay. Um, well, I created the meme um, because I create memes <laughs> every every day. You know, I have things that's on my mind, and I just pretty much, you know, use my Instagram to to speak about it. Um, but you know, of course, like I told you know me and me me Pete me and Pete spoke about it afterwards and everything. Everything's all good, but I, I, it, that was not directly that directed towards him in any way. But I do feel like, you know, you know, as a whole, and I'd say including myself, we spend too much energy on what the younger generation is actually doing and how it's affecting us. And I just feel like we hip hop is at at its you know, at a paradigm shift right now. Like we're actually getting what was the the, the, the uh, birthday was forty four years old? Yeah. That's nothing. Right. You know, to me. So it's like, you know, we are still in the transition mode. And as people that are still actively involved, we do ourselves a disservice by calling a young man's game in the first place. You know, you can still, there's people out there, I speak to fans and people all the time that want a certain kind of music. The younger cats can't make that kind of music because they haven't experienced it. So instead of catering to that, to the younger people, we know how to make that type of music. Let's continue to push it, continue to let people know that um, we're still here, we're still experienced, and so on. What was it, the second question, part of the question? Uh, with radio plays seeming to be part right. of it, being a young man's game, how does, I guess, how does the older generation create, well, push you that they're, they're lame? We have to understand that that honestly we can't try to get rich off of one big off of one song anymore like that whole concept of being the popular artist right now and and being on the radio and having your record streaming a thousand times a day may not be uh for the older generation right now but at the same time we are still at a point where we are we should be building a foundation for the older generation so that we can have those records that spin everything because technology right now is allowing you to have a playlist on spotify that can essentially have old head music if you want to call it that (laughs) the technology is there it's just for us to make it if we don't make it then how are we going to have a playlist for it right uh you obviously like you're a producer, you're an artist, mm-hmm. but and you know the you know the culture, you know the entertainment side, but you also know the business side, right? Um, what happened? Was there an event or something that happened <laughs> that you said oh, I got to know the business side of this before you know to have longevity in this, or or so I won't get screwed over on something? Like why make that conscious effort to actually know the business side of this? Um. Yeah, that's a real good question because I just felt like I always, it was always a part of me, you know, even when we were coming up. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know a lot. I didn't know a lot, but I knew a, enough 
you know, and like Cam and them used to always bounce stuff off of me. You know, and that and that's kind of even with me and Cam's relationship. That was that's kind of how it worked. Like we were kind of the yin and the yang. You know, like he had more of a a hustler mentality, and I think I had more of a corporate business mentality. If you if lack of a better you know kind of comparison, you know, and that's just really what it was. You know, I wanted to look at the fine print. You know, sometimes he didn't want to look at the fine print. You know, sometimes that that attitude, that works in both ways. It works, you know, it can work for you. But um, as far as the business, I just knew that that's what it all came down to. How could we actually come into this and not know the business? And then I, I really just started learning the business as I was going on and started to see the money come in and, and say, like, yo, how are you selling a million records and it's not a million dollars? Like, that's the first thought that I, I had. Like, how does that happen? And I found out how did it happen, <laughs> you know, and I found out that um, it's nothing new, you know. So I just wanted to make a concerted effort to actually just kind of pass that knowledge on to others as much as I could. I want to talk a little bit more about producing. Uh, and you kind of talked about you talked about your grandfather and right. your uncle and introducing you to music. Um, you were coming out. Of, we, we were coming out at a time where hip hop rap music was not the number one genre right our influences were rock music right. soul you have a new generation of producers that their influence is hip hop right uh, how do you think if at all maybe has that changed producing um, do you think I mean sampling are you yeah. sampling other rap artists versus sampling soul or rock music right how does that change the actual well production? um I'm going to say that you can you can it it really affected the music a lot because I mean as you can see on the commercial level you know the foundation of what is popular now is based on I guess what we would call trap music right right and and everything is based on that foundation right now it's like I teach you know you know I teach my my music business class and in in students like one of my students didn't like like I, I noticed that when they're listening to the music they can't even hear that it's the same thing <laughs> like <laughs> right so I'm sitting there saying well the song that you just played is essentially trap right. and they hear it totally different it, no that's not this one is different because of this that and the third so that tells me that there's a lot of knowledge that uh, or a lack of knowledge that they don't have in the experience of different genres of music and essentially how genres are built is just totally gone. And um, it's, it disappoints me because, like you're saying, I, I was looking at um, a video on YouTube and, uh, you know, it was kind of a little montage of hip-hop from when it started oh, yeah, all yeah. the way up. I mean, you've probably seen that. But you see it, <laughs> you know, in that video. It's kind of like you see different ty- styles of music. And then we got to... 2000 or something and like Lil John and yeah. Eastside Boys and then we are still in that era right now. Oh, wow. yeah. So and when I say that era I mean as far as hip hop being built on the foundation of one type of style instead of it having influences from rock uh, jazz samples and different things of that nature. What influence I, uh, you said it uh, yeah, another interview you said um, mm. and it sounds like it's 
could be. It's also, I imagine, one of the influences in terms of music. They asked you, uh, "Are you a classically trained musician?" Right. And you said, "No, but I wish I was." Right. Uh, why? Um, I think at the time, because I think I would be able to take the classical training and morph it into what I needed to be. Take that classical classical training and filter that through my hip-hop mind. You know, that's kind of what my, I think at the time, that's what I was thinking about. Um, but now, I, I mean, I, honestly, I kind of feel different now. Like, I, I don't, I, now I feel like, you know, when people say, are you classically trained? I'm hip-hop trained, <laughs> you know? People that do, like, classical music is trained in that type of uh you know, genre on that type of style, but I'm training the hip hop style of a uh, classical music, if if you uh, can put it that way, right? Because again, I was talking to my students, and that was kind of what I was telling them that I use physical equipment like the NPCs, and for that reason, because I'm playing it as an instrument, and I'm also making the music in my head. I'm also knowing how to pitch samples. I know how to chop samples. I know how to use um, 808 drums, I know where the Lynn drum, you know, I know certain things that you have no idea that you're thinking about because you have been trained to do it in a certain systematically way. So you can be trained in that way, but there is a formal hip-hop training of music hip-hop production. Uh, in your book, The right. Beat Game, uh, you talk about uh, beat maker versus producer. Right. And you say, uh, quote, a beat maker can't be a producer without possessing the necessary production skills and training. Uh, how does a beat maker learn these necessary skills? Wow. How do they learn? They need to have a mentor like myself or other producers that came before them or good you know, teachers because um, honestly, I can't, I can't see it. You know, with, with what, the combination of technology and the, and the formula of making the foundation of what is trap music the pressure of that will deter some from going back and really understanding you know all of the important elements of hip hop production you know learning about sample bits and sound and uh, you know even studying records all of that stuff comes with being a, a trained beat maker to elevate as a as a producer. How important is the relationship you have with the artist as a producer versus, I guess, what is the relationship that a beat maker has with the artist? Right. So, uh, beat makers usually have some type of, uh, well, don't have really a working relationship with the artist or. The collaboration is not really respected. So a beat maker may essentially have a beat and then they hand it over <laughs> to the artist, right? And the right. artist then, therefore, is essentially producing themselves. Right. Um, the producer should have a, a good relationship with the artist so that they have, um, first thing is communication, right? And understanding the vision of how they want the song to sound. Um, and also, you know, I talk about in my book, like, production psychology as well, where 
you know, as a producer, you have to figure out how you can get the artists to do what you need them to do to make them make the best work. And sometimes that doesn't even come with, you know, doesn't have anything to do with music. It may have something to do with you, you know, saying, you know what, let's go down to the coffee shop and let's go have a drink or whatever and let's go chill and talk about something totally different because you know that if you can get them to relax, right. they may go back upstairs to the studio and do exactly what you need. Right. So, um, in, in, in the beat game, you also write about chopping samples. Right. And you uh, talk about how listening to beats created by sampling greats such as Jay Dilla, Pete Rock, and Premier right. helped you a lot. Um, what makes each of these producers great sampling, great samplers, but also... What did you hear kind of quickly from all three of them that stood out to you that, you know, you took away, like the, the takeaway you took from all these producers? Well, I would say definitely all three are, are musicians um, that uh, use the sample technology to, you know, to its peak. I mean, in greatness. Uh, individually, they all do... I respect all of them and both all of them individually because they all are using a technology and they do it, you know, just to- in totally different ways. Jay Dilla, for one, he just found a way to uh, create create uh, great hip hop with with limitation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, again, I mean. He's using one machine that had only a certain amount of sample time, right? So he's he's doing that, and he was actually making a soul, you know, that soul type of feeling that he has with a limited amount of space, sample time, and creativity. So that's why I like Jay Dilla, um, Premier. You know, he he he's another one that also um, you use the limitation of the sampling to um, create it but he also had um, just a funny way of taking small bits of samples um, small parts you know usually you know we you know you know when I first started sampling the first thing you want to do is just sample the, sample everything like sample a big part right because it's easy to do but then when you start breaking it down and you start to listen to things you know Premier would literally take two or three samples from different records and put it all together and it still sound like one you know um uh pete rock of course he had that um his uh his sample choices um and you can tell just the influence of of the soul and the the big horns and stuff like that was was definitely one of the things that i admired about him that the layering is what i would say the layering in his samples where he would have you know maybe it may, the sample may have came from the same record but he'll have two or three elements running parallel in that track filtering out the bass bringing up certain different sounds and also having them horns in the background that was always blasting drums was always hard so those three is definitely you know I took little different elements I mean again I just learned from them you know not personally but by listening What's your favorite thing about producing? Like favorite aspect, the conversation in the coffee shop, the sampling, the uh, final product. Producing, uh, I would think, I would say, uh, 
it's, it may, may sound a little crazy, but just, just, just the ability to be consistent, to keep doing it. You know, that's really what's pleasing. I, like, you know, it's something, you know, again, I always refer to it as drawing a painting. And it's, it's really, to me, it's just like that. It's like every time I sit down and make some music, I'm making something new. I'm making something new every time. Now, the minute when I feel like I can't make anything new, then that's probably going to be one of the worst days of my life. <laughs> but, you know, I don't predict that ever happening, but I'm just saying that's really how I look at it. Like, you know, just being able to do it is enough for me. Uh, you're not only a producer, an artist, you're, you're, you're also a writer. Yeah. Right. Uh, you have writing credits on 50 Cent's uh, Many Men. Right. What, what was that? What is it? What is how is a writing collaboration different than kind of the producer artist relationship? I guess in, in this in this instance, what was that writing collaboration um, like? Well, honestly, in that situation, that wasn't like the typical writer producer type of collaboration. That was, you know, that was really one of those things where I made a track, Fifty loved it, said he was going to use it. I didn't believe him, and but he used it, and you know. Sold 13 million copies. Again, it's all about trust, though. It's all about trust. Like, you, you're building trust. And that's what I tell, you know, aspiring producers right now. Like, even though you're doing music today, you still need to do it to build trust. So you're not trying to actually only get a placement for money you're trying to get your music out there so that people can validate you even more because it's like a building block you know what i mean once you the more you do the more people believe that they that you know what you're doing so once you do that and and then you'll be able to get in the room with with an artist and then let the create the creative juices flow you know as far as as far as writing and so Here's a confession. Mm-hmm. At the end of like high school for me, right. say 96, 97, I went through a phase of uh, not liking commercial hip-hop. So if it was on the radio, I was like, fuck that. Right. Like, you know, can't be good. Whatever. So the bad boy phase, whatever. Um, and there's for different reasons why, like kind of the cult they sold out or lyrically they weren't as good as underground hip-hop, so to say. Uh, I think also political reasons, like pushing certain type of content versus... Right. Uh, but then I discovered, and through that push, I discovered Blackstar and those people. But if I came to you, but you, but you admittedly, but you've been successful and have radio play mm-hmm. with your music. Uh, so it could easily have been like, I probably heard Cameron and I was like, ah, fuck that. Right. Uh, but in hindsight, those guys are really good. Like, and the music, and the music is great. If I came to you mm-hmm. at that time and told you, my argument what would your response have been to me in terms of like why should I listen to why is that why is that argument hmm. BS and what would you have said to me um, probably at that time I would have tried to convince you that oh, excuse me that um, we weren't part of that shit <laughs> you know like basically you know like we weren't we weren't from we weren't trying to do that and I, and I truly believe we weren't like Cam and I were against that mm-hmm. you know we really were against that whole movement um obviously i mean we you know we made records that we had to do <laughs> right. at that time 
but we weren't we weren't with it and i would just i would have just probably encouraged you to listen to probably maybe 12 of 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 the 15 tracks on the album maybe <laughs> you know because again but just at that time though the whole business model was different you know record companies were really making music and determined to say okay these are going to be the three singles that we're going to go and we're going to push the radio and then everything else on the album could be whatever you want it to be so of course now it's a little bit different well a lot different is there a song just speaking of that model in terms mm-hmm. of you know whatever you what you know what, what the listener hears on the radio is would be like oh you made that beat like you know versus like there's a song that you made or produced right. on an album that they just didn't know um, would there have been a track that you created not for radio that you'd rather have people know like would would be your ideal radio play I guess oh versus what we actually heard on the radio. Made? yeah that you made they'd be like alright well we heard this from Digga on the radio but Digga would rather have us be like well this Digga really want this as the radio play <laughs> oh yeah um Probably, uh, well, it's one track uh, called uh, Losing Weight featuring Prodigy. Um, that's that's one, but it's actually a really popular track. Like you know, doesn't didn't really get it didn't get any radio play, but it actually you know you know my peers and you know in the industry you know constantly you know ask me about it. Like they want to resample it, they want to you know they, they you know they just acknowledge it. So that's one of the that's one of the tracks that I'm glad I'm I'm known for. But I would I would appreciate it if it was out there probably more. Lastly, if you were to look at your 18 and 20 year old self going into this industry. Would there be advice you would give yourself just uh, that you didn't know, but now you know? Um, probably, again, which is great, great advice right now, regardless, is just keeping your network of people uh, in this industry um, because that's really what it's all about. Um, you know, my 20-year-old self, I was new to the game and I was learning everything as I was going along, but... Um, I didn't really appreciate who I was coming in contact with, you know, um, you know, and not to say that you need to get in contact with people because you may need them later, but it's just one of those things that you're in the industry and if you're in the industry and you're really serious about it, you're going to be in the industry. You know, it's kind of like musical chairs. People move around, but they're still going to be around. So, um... That's one of the things that I've learned, especially on the business side. On the creative side, I, w- I would definitely say that um, um, just developing developing more of a sound, a distinctive sound. Um, 
you know, in my era, honestly, you know, I came, I came up with, you know, it was uh, me, it was, you know, Swiss Beats, uh, who else? You know, Dame Grease. Um, and, yeah, you know, Easy Moby, uh, you know, during that time, the whole, you know, Hitman, Bad Boy, you know, Trackmaster. So, you know, at that time, you, you were kind of in a clique. But I, I believe if I, you know, if I would have known how, how important it was to kind of develop a sound that would last the test of time, you know, my career would have been a lot, you know, better or more successful, I believe. Producer, author, writer, right. artist, uh, Daryl Digger Branch, Six Figure Entertainment. Thank you so much for joining me on the Thank library. you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Talking to the wrong style gun. Capital P, I know what's the outcome. Could bow some, but rather pull out the stout guns. Don't let your mouth get you in shit your legs run from. For all the killers in a hundred dollar hoes. For real bitches, check me out though. We be the most ill, more drama than Denzel. More lava than the park fighting Sonny Carson. Man, killer cam, lava to carbon. It's crazy. Bitches throwing they pussy. Niggas flash raising. It's crazy. like I'm losing weight. I ain't got no money if I'm moving weight My life's based upon what I'ma do today Why I can't move away Just looting me without the scrutiny Niggas screwing me Two and three, two and C's Four shots, one two DG One eulogy, make sure my mother and girl Is smothered in pearls when a nigga under the world Why I feel like I'm losing weight Why I ain't got no money if I'm moving weight My life's based upon what I'ma do today Why I can't move away just looting me without the scrutiny. Niggas screwing me, two and three truancies. Four shots, one eulogy, one eulogy. Make sure my mother and girl is smothered in pearls when a nigga under the world. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.